Tonight's episode is brought to you once again by your local search and rescue team, survivalfeeling.com, and you, our listeners. Do you want to go back and explain to everybody how a seven-year-old girl repelled over a bluff and you wouldn't repel over that very same bluff? And he was like, ah, crap. What is up, all of you wayward souls? Welcome back once again to the Wayward Stories podcast. I am your host, Justin, a.k.a. The Wayward Son. And tonight we are going to be talking more, quite a bit more, about search and rescue. Um, We're not going to have a lot of housekeeping tonight because, to be completely honest with you, I recorded this episode you're listening to this week, last week, when I recorded the other episode. Because, be honest, my personal life, I've got some pretty wild stuff going on. Um, Not like bad stuff, but just big life stuff, you know. And I know that the next couple of weeks could get crazy. And I've got a block of time tonight, here on Memorial Day, where I can get this second episode out and it goes right along with the last episode, like it's kind of going to just flow, so I went ahead and recorded tonight. So there's not really any housekeeping to go over because I haven't lived the week that I'm about to have yet to have anything to talk about. But I hope that all of you have a great next weekend, last weekend, as you're listening to this. Um, So let's get right into it tonight. Last week we talked about my personal experience in search and rescue. We talked about what we do as search and rescue teams. We talked about what to do if you get lost to help the search and rescue teams in your area find you. We talked about the benefits of joining search and rescue. Um, This week, we're going to get into it and we're going to talk about some of the stories, some of the, a few of the things that I've, I've, experienced in trainings and actual searches um, in my four or five years, five years now, I guess, in search and rescue, because I feel like they'll be um, entertaining and there's a lot of meat on the bones in a couple of these. And I really feel like it will give you guys a really good taste of what to expect if you join search and rescue. And I feel like that you will enjoy what you hear. I think once you see what we do and how we go about it, you're going to see it possibly in a different light. If you're one of those people that believe it's like the old ways, it's the old, oh, everybody shows up and everyone goes and walks through the woods and yells. Once you find out how technical this can really be, it is just fascinating. It's interesting. It's engaging. If you're an outdoors person, I think you're going to love a lot of the stuff that we talk about tonight. And I hope that it does entice you to join your local search and rescue team, because I'm sure they would be happy to have you. And I promise you, you will be happy to gain all of the knowledge and the training that you can receive. And you'll feel pretty good about yourself if you get to go out there and actually save somebody's life. Um, I'll tell you what, one of the very first search and re- to give you an idea of how cool these trainings can be or how interesting searches could turn out. I'm going to tell you a real short blurb. This one's just like a one-off. So we put it right at the beginning about one of the major trainings that I missed because big purple and all of their awesomeness could give me a day off work back two years ago. I'd been there like six, seven months, never missed a day requested it six months ahead of time. Checked in every month to make sure they remembered. And then what got down to the week before, they're like, no, um, you can't have that. And I still, I'm still salty about it. I'm still bitter about that big purple. But, you know, I'm bitter about a lot of things. Um, But this was a downed aircraft search mock exercise. And this was a big one. We held it here in Sebastian County. We hosted it. But it was multi-agency. Civil Air Patrol was involved. Adam was involved. Arkansas Department of Emergency Management. I don't recall, but I believe we had a couple of other regional search teams that came and joined us. I'm not positive about that. And we had a group from Texarkana come up with like airplane parts to stroll out in a field. And we set up this giant mock search, day-long search, and what we the whole situation was looking for survivors of a plane crash who might be wandering away from the plane crash. Um, not incoherent, but dazed and confused and, and not thinking straight from head injuries or dehydration or what the trauma that they had just been through. People tend sometimes after a traumatic incident, people just wander in shell shock randomly. 
Um, so they set up, we set up this giant exercise with downed aircraft parts. We put, you know, well, we put people out there to function as dead people. And we put people out there to function as walking wounded who were walking around with head injuries and wandering into the woods and did it. And we used civil air patrol. There were communications involved. We're communicating with civil air patrol and communicating from IC to the searchers in the field. Civil air patrol has got somebody moving over here in this area. Team two, you're closest to that. Go 36 degrees to your Northwest, whatever. That's where they're generally at. Like, I just want you to imagine, though I missed this one and it hurts my soul to this day. And like I said, I'm still salty AF about it. Just think about how cool that scenario was to be a part of that day. Some of my team members that I'm still with, like they remember it fondly, but with, you know, like I said earlier, there's not, not a lot of glory in search and rescue, but there's a lot of ticks and a lot of uh, sweat. That day was particularly heavy on the ticks and sweat as I have been um, has been related to me. But just think about how cool that search had to be. Think about that training exercise. Adam's there. Like you've got Civil Air Patrol, you got planes in the air circling the area. Like there were so many moving parts in that scenario. And that's like an example of a training you might find yourself a part of. Like, guys, that I, I'm sorry, that's just like cool as hell. Like that is cool as hell. And I'm still salty about it. Um, I'll tell you what, one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite stories is cause there's always like these little things that go into stuff. But one of my more favorite stories is when I did my very first basic repelling class, I've never been like phobic of heights. I've never been extremely scared of heights, but I'm not like a dude that's going to climb up on the edge of a peak and have like six inches and be okay with it. Like, I think I'm scared of heights in the sense of like self-preservation and reasonable. You put me up on a six or 700 foot tower or something and it's got a guardrail and a big deal. There's a guardrail. You put me out there with no rope, no guardrail, no anything walking down a bluff face, like <laughs> big bluff with 18 inches between me and the ground. I'm going to be real careful. I'm not necessarily scared, but I am definitely wary and aware but it all changes when you're going to go over a sheer cliff and you're going to hang 80, 80 feet in the air. I think we had two cliffs. We had like a 30 foot and like a 70 foot bluff or something in our first, my basic rappel class. And y'all, you understand at those heights, it doesn't matter if it's 30 feet or 3000. Well, okay. Maybe it does. <laughs> that might be a, 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 unfair characterization. People have survived 30 foot falls, but like you almost don't want to. The damage is so brutal at 30 feet and the things it's going to take you to overcome that, you'd almost just like rather it be the 3000 feet. Um, but like once you get up, say 60, 70 feet above like solid rock, it doesn't matter if it's 70 feet or 700, the results the same at the end. So the first time I go to go over, I'm a grown ass man. Like I'm, 37? No, no, no. It's been more years than that. 36? 36 or 37. And I was terrified. I mean, there was anxiety building, like, and it took too long for my turn, but there was anxiety building that I can't even like relate to you. I was really terrified. And I just kept having to tell myself, these people are professionals. They know what they're doing. And they're putting me over this rope. This is totally okay, dude. This is okay. But it wasn't really working. And I'm not going to drop any names because I'm not going to call anyone out on here. But I had a couple of my search and rescue peeps with me. There were multi multiple agencies there training. But of my team, I think there were three of us there, four that were going over. And we had a really young guy who was like a gung-ho, chucks to the wall, volunteer firefighter. He's like 18 years old. And then we had another guy who was a little bit closer to my age, but not quite. He's a little bit younger than me. He's not quite as refined. Um, doesn't have as much aging in the old beard, as much wisdom. Um, and then uh, one of our, our female members. And across that array of that demographic, all four of us were terrified and not afraid to admit to each other. That surprised me about the young guy, gung-ho, 18, everything to prove to the world. Usually they ain't going to let you know they're scared. They try to pretend they're not, and you can just tell by the giant pit stain <laughs> in their shirt. You know what I mean? No, we were all like, we're, we were scared. We were scared. 
And to make matters worse, but maybe not, maybe it's what got the job done. One of the women on the other team over on the other side of the line from us in Oklahoma, one of their team members, she had a, a daughter and I believe, what, how old was she at that time? She had probably been seven or eight, something like that. Little bitty old thing, tiny, tiny, like miniature, short, super thin, little bitty old thing. They strapped her up in her repelling gear. They got her all outfitted and everything fitted to her. She's got her little helmet on and she's got her little safety glasses on and her gloves right over the side and like a boss, like the whole thing. I mean, she was like styling on it. Like she was styling on us. Like we got a whole bunch of grown people up here who were like shaking in their boots, legitimately unapologetically scared of going over this cliff. And this little girl just balled off. Like it wasn't no big deal. And she's like, I mean, I swear she's like doing pirouettes in the air. She's like jumping down, bouncing off the rock face. And like, she was killing it. And I looked over at our guys and I said, they did that on purpose. And they were like, what? I was like, they did that. They sent her over on purpose because now a little girl has gone over the edge. Are you going to not? Do you want to go back and explain to everybody how a seven-year-old girl repelled over a bluff? And you wouldn't repel over that very same bluff. And he was like, ah, crap. You're right. They totally did that on purpose. And to this day, I don't know that they did, but I, I, they did. I promise they did. I know they did. Um, the interesting thing about it is this is the hardest part. And I'm glad we did it the way we did that day. There are better ways to do it. I've learned since, but I'm glad we did it the way we did that day because we did it like essentially the hardest way possible to break the edge. That's the bad part of repelling is breaking the edge. It's when you're standing on solid ground and everything's okay. And the next thing you have to do is you have to break edge and you have to rock back and you have to go over the edge. And then you're basically inverting yourself. You're going from a standing position to a sitting position. And you're trying to do that without turning upside down or your feet coming out from under you and you kissing the rock face. And when you kiss the rock face, let me tell you, it is incredibly intimate. And it's the most uncomfortable, intimate kiss you will ever experience in your life. I don't recommend it. Like, it's not easy to break that edge when you've got your rope on basically waist level to you. And then you've got to just set back into it and you've got to control your descent into it and get your feet under you on the side of the face and then start your way down. When the rope finally catches the edge and you put out your mat, you put out your rope saver, whatever you got, a piece of carpet or an actual commercial rope saver. Once you've set that there, when the rope and you break edge far enough that that rope catches that it's your golden, it's gravy. And it is an incredible rush. Like it is an absolutely amazing experience to be hanging 30 or 40 feet or 70 or 80 feet. And, it, and once you do it a few times, it doesn't matter if it's 500 feet. It feels awesome. You're looking down and you're just hanging. You're just free floating and you can, you can move, you can stay, you can bounce off the wall, you can play with it a little bit. Like it's so much fun to get over the edge, but it's getting over that edge. It's breaking that edge, especially for the first time you've ever done it. I stood there on that edge and I was terrified as much as I have been. And as long as I can remember, I was so scared. But what got me through it for me personally was number one, they sent little girl over the edge and she is awesome. Number two, I was looking right in the face of my instructor, like almost intimately. It was awkward for me, but that's how I was getting over the edge is not looking below me. And not looking down at the edge that I had to break was looking him right in the damn eyes for way too long of an extended period of time. And it was awkward. But that's what got me through it. And I simply did what he told me. I just followed the instructions coming out of his mouth and did nothing else and just paid attention to my weight distribution. I stripped it down as simple as I could. And I took out every single extracurricular anything that I could think of that was not necessary in that moment and just focused on the three or four things that I had to focus on. And I got over the edge and it was glorious and it was such a rush and it was so much fun. And all of us made it. All of us got over the edge. Nobody turned turtle. Nobody kissed the rock. And it was an amazing experience. And guess what? 
I wouldn't have probably gotten that experience in my life had the opportunity not presented itself because I was on the search and rescue team and, you know, it was taken care of. We need people trained in this. Go train in this. And it was an amazing experience. These are things, these again, these are the kinds of things that become available to you if you choose to join your local search and rescue team. Um, We had, we like, we're going to go into my next basic rope training, though it was like two years later, chronologically speaking. Like, let's just talk about it now um, because it kind of goes in order. I've done, we were on rope more than that in the time in the interim between my basic rappel and this one. But this is like was the next major step up. And that's the L1 rope rescue responder. It's a technical rope. And it's basically mostly low angles. You're still going to do some rappelling. You're still going to um, be on rope. You're still going to do most of the stuff you do in rappelling. But this is far more oriented towards low angle. It's very oriented in patient extraction, patient packaging, and, and accessing that patient. It's like on extremely steep slopes. It's not quite repel territory. It's not just going off a bluff to access someone below you. It's down a very steep slope where you still need a rope to safely get down that slope to them and then access them with a litter, get them onto the litter and their basic first aid needs met, package them on the litter, connect the litter and get the litter back up the slope. And it is a process y'all. It is a whole operation, and it ain't as simple as you might think it is. You might think, oh, yeah, you tie off your rope, you put on your harness, and you back down the hill. If you got rappelling, you've got that. Man, that is so not true. That was like a, what? I mean, honestly, we did like 12 hours a day for four straight days. One of those days, I think, was even longer. We did like 48 hours of training. Two of those days are classroom, y'all, and it's like geometry and stuff. It's like simple machines, it's load-bearing systems, it's pulleys, it's leverage, it's angles, you know, 30 degrees versus 15 degrees versus 45 degrees and how much weight's on the end of the rope. If you're at 45, the weight of the load actually doubles or if you're whatever, like, y'all, you don't even understand. You have a 200-pound person on the end of the line and if you build your anchor wrong and you build or you are pulling at the wrong ankle from the anchor... Guys, you can like double and triple the weight in actuality and functionality of how much stress is on that rope. You can double and triple the weight of the persons on the end of it. And it might not just be one person, right? It could be that person and the patient and the litter and everything combined and the medical bag, whatever. It could be so many things. And if you take 800 pound load, on a rope that's say a 4,000 pound rope and you build the anchor wrong and you've multiplied the force applied to the rope so many times, you could literally only have 600 pounds on rope, but the applied force to the rope could be like 4,500 pounds and maybe the rope. I mean, this is just generic numbers. Anyone out there that's a rescue person that's really into the numbers of ropes and loads and bearings, just bear with me. I'm just throwing out stuff to make sense for people in a simple manner. You could far out shoot you could far over stress a rope with say a four thousand pound rating you could take it 600 pounds and make it seven thousand pounds real fast if you build your your anchor wrong if you build your angles into it wrong to make that simple system work it's ridiculous or on the obverse of that coin which is in layman's terms the other side you can build that system with enough pulleys in it in the right placements that you could take that 800 pounds of people and gear on the end of that rope and have one single human being pulling it leisurely and it come up just like that. It gets complicated. I was just freaking positive. I was going to fail the book part of it. I understood the basic concept and I was trying to learn the basic things I knew I needed to know to not kill people. But to get all the questions right, I was, I was stressed. I was hardcore stressed about passing that part of the test. I knew I could get the functional part, the field work, the field stations. I knew I could do that, but I was scared about getting the smart people stuff done right. I did, but still was scared. It's not easy. But then you got to go out there, and in that last two days, man, it turns into a hell of a lot of fun. But it's a hell of a lot of work. 
Like, they set up some scenarios for you to throw down on and go, y'all, they're the real deal. Like, they put a dummy down there. That dummy weighs 150 pounds. It is a human person, and it's dead weight human person. Dude can't even throw his arm up and grab a limb to help. Like, it's dead, dead, dead weight. And anyone that's ever, I don't care if it's an unconscious human, 150 pounds of like absolutely inanimate dead weight like a dummy still weighs more than a 150 pound unconscious human. I don't know why. It's just a fact. But they had one set up and we had to locate the patient and we were way the heck. I'm talking three, 400 feet up this very steep incline. We had to access the patient, see him and access him, which included somebody going down and somebody following them down and clearing trees brush we found the clearest path and we had to go through with loppers and we were literally clearing the path and then we had to send down the litter and then we had to send down more team members to help package help lift and help carry back up the hill and then the other part of your teams at the top building out the system that's going to help get you up the hill and they're all having to work in tandem with you and you're having to communicate on the radio we need to go faster we need to go slower we need to stop it's a whole thing y'all And it's so cool, but it's so challenging. It will make you work for it. It was a blast. I'm so happy I did it. But it's hard. And you will feel accomplished when you're done. You'll feel like you really, really, really did something. And you'll be happy that you did it. And in the end, guess what? You're far more experienced with the very simple things that you can use in everyday life. For example, like knots. Y'all, a simple figure eight or a figure eight on a bite, one of the first things you need to learn, super simple knots to learn, and guess what? They are handy in all walks of life. I use them around camp all the time, guys. I've got a Prusik sling system worked out with a couple of carabiners and a couple of figure eights on a bite that I use for a cinch line for my um, rainfly system over my hammock when I camp. And see, here's the thing about a knot. There's like a few characteristics of a good knot, and I'm not going to go over them all, but like dressing out a knot, tying it properly and dressing it out so nothing's kinked and nothing's going to break when it goes under pressure. But like one of the key components of a good knot for it to be called a well-constructed knot is this got to be easy to untie. There ain't none of this, you know, axe knot. We call them axe knots. Firefighters are big on the axe knots. Tie it in knots until the only way it's coming undone is to hit it with an axe. Chop it off. There's no, you, you don't do that. A good knot is a knot that does its job, and then you can easily untie it. So my little cinch line system is literally built off of knots I learned for technical ropes, and I can easily untie it. No rope, no paracord, no twine, no anything, no guy lines, nothing is ever lost. And it's all like something that I just adapted from something I learned for search and rescue to a practical use around the camp. Like, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to getting into technical ropes. And number two, you get way more comfortable with using ropes, with being on ropes. So if you are a climber, if you're a, um, into repelling or spelunking, into caving, like this stuff is all multi-purpose. It's all multifunctional for you. Like you're going to get a lot of use out of it. But so these are the kinds of things that are going into this L1 rope rescue responder. But the single coolest thing that we did Actually, there's two more things. You know what? I'm just going to quit saying coolest thing ever and most beautiful thing ever. I'm just embarrassing myself at this point. Um, But one of the things we did is we repelled into what we called the hole. There was a crack in top of a rock up there in our training area that literally went into like a 30-foot deep cave. And when you got off rope at the bottom in the cave, you had to crawl out a tiny hole in the cave on your stomach to come out of another crack in the rock to get back out onto solid ground out from under the cave. And it was amazing. There is a video of that on my YouTube, youtube.com forward slash wayward stories. It's called repelling into the hole Ozark mountains. Um, you can't see a lot of what's going on in the hole because the video is taken from the top, but you can see the descent into the hole and y'all it wasn't much wider than my body is wide when I'm turned sideways. Like it, Oh my God, it was extreme. It felt awesome. That was super cool. And one of those kinds of things you might just gain access to if you join Search and Rescue yourself. But that was super cool. But one of the other cool things I did was you had to learn how to ascend. There had to be a certain amount of ascension. Obviously, when you repel, typically you are 
descending, right? You're going down. But you need to be able to climb that rope to a certain degree. And ascend is basically, it's not like it sounds. It's not like climbing the rope in gym class. And it's not like having to climb a rope if you've been in basic training or whatever. This is like, it's equipment assisted. You have a belay that should be able to multifunction. And you should be able to slide it up rope and then work your way up the rope. It's not easy. But there are systems in place to make that work. And they had some of those in place. We had like a little tie rope that went off the bottom of your... um your belay system and into your like put the loop around your foot and when you need to go up you just give it a little thrust and throw that thing up the rope as far as you can let go it's hung now you step into it and you get yourself back up until the belay comes about right here about face level and then you work it up again and i was actually now there were other people there that could do it like the people that were instructing us but of our people that were there training, I was the only one to successfully not just ascend to the top, but actually break the edge in reverse and make it on top of the cliff and back out the other side, go off rope and be standing on the level above us. A couple of other people managed to ascend to that point and then they had to drop back down. But once I got there, somebody was like, going over the top. One of the instructors like going over the top. And I was like, really, how you do that? And he's like, just go. So I started working it and I figured it out, got over the top. And I was super psyched about that. No one took a video of me doing that, though they were supposed to be. And they had my phone. They did not perform the task at hand. Just is what it is. Some things get lost to history. Um, but I know what happened in my mind. And, you know, that was a thing that I accomplished something that day. I felt like I overcame something. I did something for me on a personal level as Justin, the wayward son, out there looking for himself. I found a part of me right there doing that because I overcame something. I made it over an obstacle that as I looked at it, I was already dead ass exhausted from just ascending that 25 or 30 feet. Now you want me to go the next eight feet with the rock face in front of me and I've got to like put knees on it and I've got to lift the rope to move the belay up. And I mean, it became much more complicated. It was hard to do. But I wanted to do it because I was there. I was like, I'm already here. I might as well see this through. Let's do this. And I did that. And it was amazing. Again, all of this stuff is because I joined Search and Rescue. Like these are the stories of the things that happen out there when you're learn, you know, you're training. And we're gonna get into an actual search in a bit, but these are the things you get into when you're training. These are the things that you become exposed to and can even have paid for for you to go and do if you join the search and rescue team. And some of them are a little extreme. All of them are a lot of fun. Every one of them is a learning experience and you can glean and take something away from it that you can use in your time outdoors, but a lot of it you can use in your personal life. A lot of it you can use in your personal world every day. Like you just got to use a little bit of creativity and put two and two together and go with it. Next up, we're going to talk about the most recent Arsara conference we had. I went to Arsara conference couple months ago and they have conferences three or four days long you go stay somewhere we stayed on the lake we actually stayed in some old boy scout cabins which was pretty legit and stinky and you get several days of classes you just get several days of lectures and classes and there's a couple of things that happened at that arsara conference that i want to talk about that were really awesome number one thing is i got to train in man tracking under fernando Marrera who literally wrote the book on man tracking is one of the premier foremost man trackers on the face of this planet. He works with border patrol. He works with like 29. What did he say? He's a member of 29 or 39. I don't remember. Um, search and rescue teams across the country. That's like a technicality. If he's part of the team, then he can be called on command and he will fly anywhere in the world to assist in a search. He's that good. He can track people on pavement. I didn't believe that until he showed me how, and now I believe that. Um, that was one of the high points of my SAR career, just because it's like, it's so cool. I grew up hunting, I grew up fishing, and I always loved like tracking animals in the woods. And I always had this like feeling of, you know, if you know what to look for, I mean, you can follow their footsteps. You're always out there tracking their footsteps, but you notice there are other things that you can see that they've gone this way through the brush. Look at these broken little limbs or whatever. I never knew it was an actual thing 
thing until I joined Search and Rescue and saw there's a training, there's a discipline for this. There is a man tracking discipline and there are people who are the best in the world at it. And one of those guys is Fernando Marrera. And I got to train under him at this Arsara conference last year. About half of his basic class, he didn't get to put on his whole class, but when we put two and two together, added all the numbers and figured it out, we basically did most of his basic man tracking class. We just didn't get to do it with the certification at the end of it. So I'm not certified to do it, but I'm far smarter than I was before I started. And you want to talk about track aware and clue aware. Like I said in the last episode, we hunt for clues. We don't hunt for people, we hunt for clues. Because you hunt for people, you miss clues. And you'll just be wandering blind in the woods. But if you hunt for clues, clues will always take you to the people. And they will update your LKPs and your PLSs. And it will get you closer and closer as you hone down that bullseye of where you need to be putting all your resources to look for somebody. And if you go and take a man tracking course, you want to talk about track aware and clue aware. You'll be down there. He's teaching you things like... I mean, he walks right through a sand pit and he comes back and he's like, go find all the steps. And you're going through with these skewers and you're trying to find the steps and you're using your man tracking stick and you're using all the little skills he's taught you so far, but you can't see anything because it's noon. And that's why you're doing the class right now is because it's noon. Um, So he's looking at this and you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And he's like, here, let me show you a trick. And he comes down with a really bright LED flashlight and he holds it sideways and throws light across it just like it's morning or night and bam there's a footprint the size of dallas right in front of you in all of its glorious detail like the things that he showed us and it was so awesome y'all absolutely Mm. again it's a high point he showed us how to track people on pavement like on concrete and asphalt and i literally didn't buy it I was like, I don't, I know you're the best of it. I didn't say this to him, but in my mind, I'm like, I know you're the best in the world. I know you're one of the premier, but I don't buy it. How, how's that even possible? And then he goes and walks across the asphalt road that comes into the campsite right next to the track trap that we're working in. He walks across it and he comes back and says, I'll show you everywhere I step, come down here. And he takes you down and he shows you and he points out, look at these little pebbles. Look at the scratches in the gravel or the the asphalt where they turned under the weight of my foot. Look at that little black smudge that came off of the sole of my boot. And suddenly, suddenly you see it. And it's like the clouds open up and then the angels sing. And you're like, oh my God, you can literally track people walking across concrete. You can track people walking across pavement. Are you freaking kidding me? Y'all, it's that, it's that good. He's that good. And it's that possible. And because of search and rescue, I got to train beneath one of the masters of a discipline that I've always been fascinated with. We need to take a break right here to catch a word from our sponsors. And then we'll come right back with the last half of our episode and our last couple of stories for the night. I want to take a second to tell you guys about tonight's sponsor, Survival Feeling. Survival Feeling is a hiking brand based in Greece, and they offer an assortment of gear that's aimed towards the goal of helping you better enjoy your time outside. And that is, of course, what we are all about here at Wayward Stories. I really like this company for a lot of reasons, but chief amongst them is that they were founded with giving back to the community in mind. They donate a portion of all proceeds to organizations like the Wildland Firefighters Foundation to help support those who work to keep us all safe while we're out there trying to find ourselves. We've partnered with them to bring you guys a unique coupon code that will save you wayward souls 15% off of your order. Go to survivalfeeling.com and use offer code waywardstories at checkout. I think you guys will like what they have to offer and what they're all about just as much as I do. Once again, that's survivalfeeling.com and use the offer code waywardstories. During my Sartec 2, it, it goes into the next level where you really start getting into gear. You start getting into things like hasty harnesses and knots and some of the things you're going to need to build on to go into like your L1 rope responder stuff. But I'd already done some of that. doesn't really matter what order you do it in as long as you get certified for that particular thing. But Sartec 2, to become a SAR 2, you do need to have a lot of those skills and you will go and learn them over the course of the class for SAR 2. But what I want to talk about my Sartec 2 is Part of SARTEC 2 is you get to do an overnight search as a part of your final test. And that means you get to you got to stay out there, y'all. You got to stay. Okay? You got to find the person 
and then you got to stay there. Wilderness survival is a part of search and rescue. And one of the things that drew me to search and rescue, because I've always, always been about some bushcraft. I love bushcraft. I love firecraft. I love the art of survival in the wilderness. And that's a part of your SARTEC 2 training. You got to stay out overnight. After you complete the search, you got to build your fire with one of your fire sources. Like, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And it's a whole awesome thing. But that's, I want to talk about specifically the search, the mock search. Um, I was deemed incident commander. Um, it's a matter of who seems to have the most knowledge. You always make the incident commander. There's always got to be someone on scene that's in charge. And that person is the highest ranking, most capable person until the next person shows up who is higher ranking than you or more capable than you. But somebody's got to be in charge. So we go in, they've set up this search, and there's basically a big loop hiking trail that goes around this big valley. And somewhere along this trail is where we're going to find our victim. They've already set our victim up out there. He's wherever the heck he's at. And um, it's a dummy. You know, it's an actual rescue dummy. And your job is to go out there, run a line search along the length of the trail, keep everyone, both your left and your right flanks, keep everyone even, keep everyone looking. Everyone's trying to be clue aware and track aware, and they're looking for clues that have been set out for you. And it's a whole thing. And this is all after dark. Like you're doing all this in the dark. We started just before dark, really in dusk. There was no sunset. We went as soon as the sun crossed the horizon. And we kind of started the first leg of the trail in dusk. Well, as we're going down the trail, like I got to tell this story because I got to give credit where it's due. We're going down this trail and, you know, 10 minutes into it, 15 minutes into it, I hear, you know, my left flank and you're running down the center. My left flank's like, hold. And everyone stops. You holler down the line. What do you got? It's like, I think I see him. And we're like, what? No, there's no way. It's too soon. He's like, no, across the valley, on the other side of the valley, I think I see him. I think I see his legs. So you hold the line. You know, everyone stays put. I walk down to the end of the line to him, and I'm like, okay, show me. And I'm looking, and he's pointing out these two things that look like blocks. They look like rocks. They look kind of like very rectangular-ish rocks. And he's like, it looks like legs to me. And I'm like, man, crap, it might be. So I have a monocular. It's a Vortex monocular. Vortex makes amazing glass. And this came from a whole different lifetime and a different set of circumstances. But I keep it with me in my search pack because it's magnification and it's great glass. It's like a $400 piece of glass. So I'm looking downrange at this thing he's pointing at. And even through the Vortex, even through the good glass, it's getting so dark because dusk is right. Dark is right on us. It's dusk. I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I can see it, man. I was like, I think... I was like, you could be right. It could be legs. It almost looks like legs in gray sweatpants, but it's too blocky. I said, I think it's just a couple of rocks. I think it's a natural formation, just a couple of rocks in the right spacing from the right distance. And it's an optical illusion. I don't think it's our guy. And, and he's like, man, I don't know. I really think it's our guy. And I'm like, okay, well, here's what we got to do. We got to keep moving. And, you know, you're you're doing this whole scenario. It's mock. You pretend everything's in place. So we're pretending there's an incident command somewhere. I'm like incident command in situ, but you're pretending there's actual a staging trailer somewhere. There is an operation center, whatever. So we, quote unquote, pretended to call in our coordinates, our NAT grid coordinates, and give them the bearing off of our position to what we saw that we thought could be a pair of legs so that they could investigate it if at all possible because we had to continue our part of the grid. It would have been different if we were really looking for a real human. Some things would have been done differently, but in the situation, it was just a little thing that came up and it's like, okay, we got to keep moving because we've got to do our night search and that's kind of a one-off thing. Like, you know, your instructors are there with you and at some point they have to say, y'all got to quit wasting time on this because that's not the thing. Just keep moving. You have to keep moving. Um... Because they know the bigger picture, right? They know where the dummy is. So anyway, we go on through the night. A couple hours later, it's pitch dark. We've been tromping through the woods, through waist high, God knows what. Like grass and weeds down to the lake. Down to the lake front, to the water's edge. Searching the water's edge. Looking for footprints in the mud, etc., etc. And we come away with nothing. So we start back up the other side of the valley. It's important to note that that's the side of the valley where we saw the possible legs. So we start up the other side of the valley, and another hour later, whatever, 
suddenly, there we are. At a pair of legs that just so happened to be the exact legs that old Eagle Eye, as I started to call him, saw with his naked eye from across the valley over a half a mile away at dusk. I kid you not. And me with a monocle on it, monocular, with magnification on it at that time of night, couldn't see it. All I could see was gray and blocky. He saw it with his naked eye. He found our dude at the start of the search. The reason they had us keep going is because you're not supposed to find the dude in the mock search. There's a training exercise. You need to train through this exercise. You got to finish the exercise. If that had been a real person, yeah, we would have called in the location, though we couldn't access him from where we were. We would have called in the location of our NAT grid coordinates, and we would have called in his bearing from us so that they could try to get another team there. And if they couldn't get another team there, we would have started trying to make our way around, used our topo maps, and started working our way around to it as quickly as we could. In the situation, it couldn't work that way because there was a training exercise that had to be played out. But Eagle Eye spotted a pair of legs in gray sweatpants on the side of a freaking rocky face of a hill in the Ozark Mountains from a half a mile at dusk. And the reason they looked blocky and I backed off of it as them possibly being human legs, even looking through the scope, is because they were blocky. Because they only had the upper torso of the damn dummy, so his sweatpants were filled with milk cartons to fill out the legs. Milk cartons with crap in them, like sand, I think, because this dude had to be heavy, right? Because we have to litter him out, by the way. We're getting to that. Um, So they looked blocky because they were like these more rectangular, angular, like man-made shapes, like right-angled shapes inside these pants at a distance. But my dude, I'll eagle eye. I'm not going to call him out by name just for the sake of anonymity. But he saw him all the way across that valley, like a half a mile away at dusk. And it's it's mind-blowing. Some people have superpowers. Like my superpower is I turned 40 and I don't can care what anyone thinks about me anymore. That's a superpower. But he has eagle eye vision. And I, I would almost trade him, honestly. Anyway around it, we find our guy, we litter him up, we get him, and then you've got to start the litter train. You've got to carry him out. And there's a process to this. When you litter somebody out, you can only litter for so far because they're heavy even with four or five people on litter, six people, whatever. And sometimes you can't fit all six people. The terrain you're coming out of, the trails can get so narrow, it gets a little bit crazy. I'm not going to go through all the details, but what I want you to understand is 200 pounds of dead weight is a lot of dead weight, even when six people are carrying the load. When you're traveling uphill on the rocks, just imagine hiking, guys. Imagine hiking, but having to carry like 85, you know, let's say what six divided by... 200, you know, 40 pounds, a 40 pound dumbbell, just a ballpark figure, a 40 or 50 pound dumbbell in your left hand and say you're right-handed. That makes it even harder or put it in your right hand. If you're left-handed, say you just flip flop sides, but carrying 40, 50, 60 pounds in one hand uphill up a hiking trail. And you're not even really on the trail because trails are narrower than that, right? One person's usually the width of a hiking trail. You've got a two foot wide litter in between you and the other person. You guys are walking on the sides of the hiking trail where all the crap and the detritus and the forest floor junk is. It's not easy. And then you got to hike all the way out of here. You might have two miles. You might have two miles to hike out, guys. You've got to have a rotation in. So you've got three or four of your members hanging back. And whenever someone gets tired and they have to get, let be done with it, they'll throw up their opposite arm that they're not holding anything with. And then somebody from the back who's rested and just hiking behind will come up. They fall in behind them and they grab the litter right behind the other person's hand and they slap them on the shoulder and they say, mine. They let the person know that I have the weight of the litter. You can now let go. And the person who is tagging out will then in turn say before he lets go of the weight, he will say, yours, which allows them to know that the weight is now coming into my hand. You let each other know, you confirm with each other, I am now taking the weight. I am now giving you the weight. That way you don't drop a patient. Um, let's get on to, we're going to get on to now. I hope you've all hung with me this long because we're now going to tell my final story of the night. 
there was a missing person. He'd been missing three or four days um, north of Lake Fort Smith, which is real close to here near Fort Smith, but it's up in the Ozark Mountains. And the Ozark Highland Trail is on the far side of the lake, and it starts in that general area. It's 232-mile-long trail. We've talked about it before, but there was a person missing in that area. He'd been missing for a couple of days. We got called in to assist. We t- we were able to dispatch two teams. Um, I think there was four on one team, and there was five on our team. But we go in and we get assigned um, north of the lake across Frog Bayou. We have to walk across Frog Bayou and, and access the Ozark Highland Trail. We're given the high Ozark Highland Corridor across the backside of Lake Fort Smith to a certain point, at which point we're supposed to come down to the mouth of the creek that comes in there and extract by Arkansas Game and Fish. Um, we go in, we get to the trailhead, we park. It's getting dark by the way this is late evening we've had thunderstorms all day this guy that's missing has been out there in the thunderstorms the lightning the wind and the rain has been missing a couple of days we get out there after the thunderstorms are starting to clear and the sun came out just in time for sunset so we hike in the first few little ways of the trail heading over to the access for the oht and as we get to frog bayou and start to start to cross frog bayou which is big broad at this point it's not a lot of water flow but it's real broad there's a giant bright rainbow across the entire sky. I've got the coolest picture on my phone of my team ahead of me, single file, walking across Frog Bayou with this giant rainbow behind them across the dark-ass sky behind it from the storms that had rolled on to the west. And I remember thinking, we even said to each other, hey, maybe there's a pot of gold at the end of, end of the rainbow tonight. Maybe we're going to find our guy. And it was just, for one thing, it was just absolutely beautiful. We were out at one of those perfect times, before a storm, after a storm, during weather, during whatever, out in the wilderness. It's just, it's an amazing time to be there. There's a certain magic in the air. But we're out there right after the storm. This amazing rainbow starts us off, and we're heading over to the Highland Trail. We're still working our way to the Highland Trail, and we're doing our call-outs as part of our attraction techniques. We're yelling out the guy's name. We're going to call him Kurt. Um, because we want to protect their names. You call her for a minute and then you listen for response. Well, this goes on for a little while. We're working our way in on the trail. And then suddenly, so, you know, we do a call out, we do an attraction. We're like, Kurt, Kurt, can you hear us? We have water, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the silence afterward, we hear, Hey, help, help. We get somebody yelling back at us and we're like, no freaking way. Did we find our dude? right out of the box and we start moving as quickly as we can it was rough going we had to move fairly slow to protect our own ankles and knees it wasn't an easy trek but we end up on the creek heading up creek and we're heading towards his voice and he's yelling we're yelling we got it we got a bit of a a yelling conversation going on and we're heading towards him well we finally myself and the newest member of our team his name was colin at that time and i haven't seen him since that search but newest member of our team and he and I got there first we were able to move the quickest of our group and we got to the bottom of this cane break along this creek arm that came into Lake Fort Smith up here in the mountains along a little bit of pretty steep bluff line it wasn't really a bluff but a very steep low angle type of hill situation and we come up on this plane we're yelling and we can hear him he's right there he's right up the hill and we just keep I was like just keep hollering just keep talking give us give us a give us a target. We're working our way towards you. Stay put. We're going to get there in just a second. And he's talking to us. So we finally, we go through the, some of the thickest cane breaks I've ever seen. There was a bamboo cane break, but Colin and I work our way through this, this bamboo cane break type of thing. We get to the base of the cliff and we're hollering back and forth. We still can't see him. And he's like right there. That's how thick the underbrush is, is we still cannot see him. And he's like less than 30 or 40 yards from us. Finally get right underneath him and spot him. He's 10 feet up, a, eh, not a bluff bluff face, but very steep, kind of stair-stepped kind of thing. And he's up under a little alcove, under a bluff, trying to stay protected from the storm that just went through. I'm like, Kurt, Kurt, like, you all right, man? You all right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And he's he's in bad shape. He's severely dehydrated. He's very hungry. He's without food. And so we go to get him down. He wasn't in a bad enough situation that we had to get ropes involved or anything, though he was up a little bluff. But what we did is I stood under the bluff and let him step down onto my shoulder while he was hanging on to a small tree that was growing out of the side of the bluff. And he stepped onto my shoulders. 
I squatted down and then he stepped from my shoulders onto my knee and then he stepped down into basically Colin's arms. Colin caught him because his knees buckled as soon as he hit the ground. You could see how dehydrated his was. His joints were protruding, protruding like he was very, very dehydrated. We're psyched. We're psyched. We found our dude, right? We got our dude. We went in. We went on our search. We didn't even get an hour into the trip. We got our dude. So we're working him back down, one of us on each side. We're sort of carrying at times, and most of the time he's kind of walking, but we are supporting him. We're getting down through the cane break. It took us 10 minutes to get down the side of that hill through the cane break supporting this guy. So we get to the bottom to our waiting teammates, two of whom are county sheriffs, by the way. And they have their carry and their service pistols. Just FYI, they have their service weapons. They're county sheriffs, but they're there functioning as search and rescue. Um, well, we get down there, and he, very happy to be found, but somewhat hesitant about us. But anyway... He had some things going on that may or may have not been illegal at some point in the last 36 hours. Let's just put it that way. So he was very wary of us, but we like convinced him. No, dude, no. We're literally just here to help you. We're just here to help you. So we're walking him out and we're, we're feeding him water. We got, as soon as we found him, we got water out of my pack and then water out of Colin's pack. We're trying to give him like granola bars. We're trying to get him some hydration and we're trying to get him back to the trailhead where we can get him to medical assistance. Right. Um, we think we've got our guy at this point. We're super psyched, all of us, okay? So as we are walking out, one of the girls on the team, she drops back to me. And she goes, I don't think this is our guy. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't think this is our guy? And she says, he, he's, he's not answering to Kurt. He's... He, he, I say, Kurt, and he doesn't look at me. And I asked him, is your name Kurt? And he shook his head, no. But he didn't tell me what his name was. I was like, you, I said, you gotta be kidding me, right? You are fucking kidding me. And she was like, no, I don't think this is our guy. So I go up to try it myself. I'm like, hey, Kurt, Kurt, you all right? And your name's Kurt, right? And he's like, no. And I was like, okay, well, then what is your name? And he was like, we're going to say Jared. Let's just say Jared. Um, You know, my name's Jared. And we're like, you're seriously not Kurt. You're Jared. And he's like, yeah. So I swap places and I drop back and I get to our team lead, which there was like three of us were team leads there that night. It's just who was able to dispatch, but it goes by rank and is literally our search team, like head of everything was our team lead that night. And I drop back to him. I'm just going to call him M. And I go, yo, M, it's not our guy. And he like he almost stopped and he looked at me. He's like, what do you mean? It's not our guy. And I was like, it's not our guy. Like, what's our guy's name? And he was like, God, what did I tell you guys? Kurt. Yeah. He's like, Kurt, Kurt, whatever it was. Kurt Robinson. It's like, his name ain't Kurt Robinson. His name is Jared. And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, seriously, go ask him. This isn't our guy. Go check. And so he goes up. And he looks back after a few minutes. I can't hear what he's saying, but he looks back and he's got the look on his eyes like this it and our guy, are you serious? So as it turns out, we may be the first and only team ever to find a person before anyone knew they were missing. Yes, you heard that right. The missing person that we were after was still missing. There was a second person missing in the same exact area. He was legitimately in need of help. He was legitimately lost and he was in legitimately deep crap. If he didn't get help, we found someone who was missing that had not been reported missing yet. Nobody even knew he was missing. Got him back to the trailhead and got him to medical attention he needed. What are the odds, guys? What are the odds? And guess what? We just, we got soaked crossing the creek, crossing the bayou. We got mud up to our knees. We've been through like the storm. We got this guy back out, but guess what? We found a guy, but we didn't find our guy. We still got a lane to clear. We got to go back and search our lane. And this is where it like gets really, really interesting for me. This is where it becomes like the most fun thing I've ever done. We go back out and we're actually at this point, we're in pretty good spirits because we legitimately found someone and we helped someone. And, you know, like to pass the time as you're on trail, you're doing your call outs, you're doing your attraction techniques, you've got flashlights going all through the woods. We're on the trail, which skirts along Lake Fort Smith. The lake's down below us. We're up on the side of the hill. And as we're going along, 
Suddenly, a loud crashing erupts in the bushes, not the bushes, like in the forest next to us. And everyone looks, and everyone's headlamps fly over to that direction and start aiming. And what do you see? A giant black bear butt bounding through the woods. Scared him away from us. He's knocking over some pretty good-sized widowmakers, like deadfall trees that were dead on the hoof, dead where they stood. Like, crashing, making all the racket in the world. Everyone had a heart attack. I think I mentioned it in the last two episodes ago or something. It came up for some reason. Everyone's over here having a heart attack because there's a black bear like 20 yards from us and nobody knew it until it was too late. Thank God his reaction was to go the other way. But so that's like the first interesting thing that happened after we found someone that nobody knew was missing that was actually missing. The next things that started to occur was that we finally get on down, okay? And this is where it turned into an absolute blast. This is where it became fun, that actual search that night. After we cleared our lane and we did not find our guy, um, we have to find our way down to the mouth of this creek. I think it's Jack Fork. I, for some reason, that name's ringing true, even though I didn't look to make sure tonight. But I think it's like Jack Fork Creek. But there's a mouth. The creek comes in. It turns into a mouth. It's like a little cove into the lake, right? So our job is to make it to Jack Fork Cove for extraction by Arkansas Game and Fish. So we go down and we we don't have a trail to get down to Jack Fork Creek that we can locate on any of our Tobo maps, on any of our GPS softwares, or in real life where we're standing. So it's like, well, we've already beat ourselves to death. We're in been in mud up to our knees. We were already soaked and disgusting. This is what we do. Let's just set the bearing and let's follow the bearing and let's get down to the mouth of the creek. And so that's what we did. We started bushwhacking our way down. And let me tell you something. It became a for real bushwhack. It became like a scene out of a movie from Vietnam. The cane breaks, the underbrush, it was literally felt like we were in a rainforest. It was so thick. We had a guy in front of us. One of our team members had brought a damn machete that I was like, why'd you bring a damn machete? And at this point, I was like, thank God you brought a damn machete. And he used that damn machete to cut our way through the cane breaks and all the briars and the brambles and everything else that was going in there. It was so slow going, y'all. We were the last team out. We were the last team out because we couldn't hardly get out. We cut our way down to the creek. And we come to a point, like we're just, you know, single file line. I swear to goodness, like I'm not comparing this to being in Vietnam. Y'all don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying it was so reminiscent of watching like a Vietnam, a movie about the Vietnam War where these guys are like having to hack their way through rainforest. It was that kind of thick. It's the middle of the night. It's been raining all day, all afternoon, all night. It's just got that feeling. And we get down to a point and we finally reach the creek. We've Our bearing has finally rang true and brought us to the edge of the creek. And I hear at the very front, I hear him say, he's like, man, it's like a 10 foot drop to the creek. And then all of a sudden he disappears. And I'm like, what just happened? Did they just go? Did he just go? Did he go? Like, no, he didn't go. He went on purpose. And I'm like, are you serious? And then the next person just, they're gone. So I walk up there to see, like I cut in line. I went all the way up. I was like, what are y'all doing? And it was like a mud bank that was like 10 feet tall, but it had kind of a slide. It had an angularness to it. It was straight down and it turned into angle. So they were just jumping off and sliding down to the bottom, to the creek. And that's why we all did. So, up to this point, we're still having, this is still exciting. This is, it, it only gets better from here, guys. I promise we're going to wrap this up soon. I know this is a long episode, but this story is so great. So we end up in the creek and we realize we're not in the proper position on the creek. We really need to be over here closer on the edge, da 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 da, where the boat can come out the side. But that is literally not an option at this point because we've already sold the farm on this. We can't climb back up the bank. The banks are steep like this all the way down into the lake. So what we do is what we had to do. We had no other options. We waited in that creek between ankle and waist deep all the way down into the lake where we were all standing in the lake on a shoal of the kind of like what would be a delta in the river. It's just like a little gravel bar that had built up from water washing in from the mountain, but it was still like mid-thigh deep in water to a weight extraction. But as we're going down, we have this situation arise. Suddenly there's a water moccasin coming from the bank at us very aggressively. Now we talked about water moccasins and aggressiveness and all that back in the Mulberry River story. 
this, I don't know where this falls into all that stuff. I don't know where this fits in the story, but I promise it happened. He came off that bank into the water at us and he was seriously coming at us. And it was a water moccasin. The bands were there. The shape of the head was there. Everyone could see what it was. We had like, what, six flashlights trained on him. High, very bright LEDs. It was a water moccasin and he wanted a piece of us. He legitimately wanted a piece of us. I guess we were a huge threat to his or her. Maybe we were a threat to the nest. I don't know how that all works with snakes. I don't like snakes, so I don't study snakes. But it came out from the bank, and its body's just weaving in the water, right? And its head's right above water. And it comes about halfway across from the distance between us. It cuts it in half. And all of a sudden, one of the, one of the county sheriffs with us drew their service pistol on that snake. And it was a freeze moment, but he didn't say that, but that was the moment we were having. And I'm not kidding. He drew down his service weapon on that snake and that snake froze in its tracks. Almost as if this wasn't the first time that had ever happened. And like, I was relieved but it's one of the funniest damn things that I've ever seen. A wildlife creature making a beeline for us. I know there's got to be another excuse for it, but don't take it away from me, guys. Don't take it away from me. <laughs> a cop drew a gun on a snake and the snake retreated. I swear to you, it froze in its tracks and it turned around and it went back to the bank. That is a true story and I have five other witnesses that will attest to it. And it was... It was awesome. It was so awesome. But now we're getting to, <laughs> that's finally over. And now we're getting to the final wrap up. And this was the cherry on top. This was the icing on the cake. This is what made this night. Just capped it off, put the bow on it. We got down to the opening of the mouth into the lake. We're in like close to, we're getting close to waist deep water. We're at least mid thigh. And we have to extract in two groups, one group of four, and that's the most that could go in the boat. And so it's like either three of us stay and three go or four go and two stay. And it just ended up four go and two stay. So the boat comes up under cover of darkness. We have a full moon, but that's it. The boat comes up. He's running blacked out. No lights because he didn't want to lose his night vision. And all you can see is those little green like night vision running lights across the bow of the boat, around the top edge of the boat. And he's just, he's, he's wide open coming across the lake. In the dark, all you can see is the little green lights coming across the water. Just can't even hardly see those. You know, guys, you guys know, like, if you ever look across the lake, if you ever spent much time on a lake, and you look across the lake, and there's, like, maybe a street light 20 miles from you on the other side of the lake, you can't see it if you look directly at it, but you can only see it in your peripheral vision. It's like it's there, and you can see it, but you can't look directly at it, or it disappears into blackness. That's what these lights look like. He's running these on this boat, and it's freaking cool as hell. And he comes in, and he idles up to us. A couple of headlamps come on. Four members climb in, and off they go. So, team lead, big boss man and I, are standing mid-thigh deep in water with water moccasin boys somewhere 80 yards behind us, and still very prescient in my mind he's still very real thought in my mind okay but he's back there somewhere and big man and i are standing there in the water and as we wait for the you know five six eight minute trip it takes for them to get them back out of the lake and come back to get us you know you got 15 minutes to sit there and wait you're waist deep in water at 1 30 in the morning it's not that warm it's pretty chilly even though it's august you just had a storm roll through hardcore storm you had a little bit of a cold front a cooling behind it but the moon's rising over the lake. You're waist deep in the water and you're standing there and you can't help but wax philosophical. And we sat there and talked about life, love, and the trappings thereof for 12, 14, 15 minutes waiting on our extraction. And then here comes the boat and he hums right up in there to us and we load up in that boat, batten down the hatches. He backs out, puts it to the floor, and I'm going 60 miles an hour across the lake in pitch blackness with nothing but the moon over my head ra rising over the lake. And if I looked behind me, away from the rising moon, a low blank bank of clouds rolling into the valley over the top of the lake coming at us. And that was one of those magical moments in life. Everything we had just done, we found, it, we found someone that needed help. We ran into a black bear, 
We cut our way through cane breaks. We waded through waist-deep water, only to be threatened by a water moccasin who is scared of service revolver, and then get extracted by boat after dark, middle of the night, completely blacked out, nothing but the moon. Like, Caius, it was magical. It was absolutely magical. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment in my entire life, not just in search and rescue. It tops the search and rescue list for me up to this point. But it's at the top of the list somewhere just in experiences I've had in my life. And see, that, that is the content that I joined SAR.com for. That's a reference that only you young people will get. Sorry for anyone else. That's, the, that's what I signed up for when I signed up for search and rescue were moments like that. Go out there in the extremes and get the job done. And ultimately, in the end, the person that was missing that we did not find did get found the very next morning. So it was a happy ending for everyone. And... It was just a really cool night. It was just a really cool night. And that right there are the kinds of things that you can expect in Search and Rescue. Should you ever choose to join, I promise you, you'll never regret it. But that is going to be probably the longest episode we've ever recorded right there. We better wrap this bad boy up. This is going to be a long one. But you know what? This was a good one for it to be long on because it's a subject I'm passionate about and I can talk about for a long time and not be probably completely boring. So hoping that you enjoyed it. And I'm super psyched that you stayed with me till the end. If you're hearing this, you stayed for the whole show. And I am happy that you stayed here with me for it. Um, I hope you guys will come back next week. And until next week, please rate, review, and subscribe. That is huge for us. We really need those ratings and the subscriptions. That helps bump us up and makes us more visible to a broader audience. Um, please submit your stories if you have any. If you got any search and rescue stories, if you're on a search and rescue team out there, or just any stories at all of your time in the great outdoors, hit us up at mywaywardstory at gmail.com. For everything else, everything social media, for merchandise, for photo galleries, for anything else you want to find about us, it's all located at www.waywardstories.com. And that's going to do it for tonight, y'all. Thank you so much for staying with us for another week. And I hope to see you back next week. And until I do, y'all get out there, be good to each other, and find something to do in the world and make this world just a little bit of a better place. Kind of like search and rescue. Rocky, the mountaintop awakes. Carry on.